0: From Kickstarter, this is just the beginning. In this episode, the new news. I'm Zakia Gibbons.
1: I'm Nick Ullman. In this episode, we'll be looking at creative new approaches to reporting the news. We'll hear about one project that's pushing back against the idea of breaking news by making their coverage more slow and deliberate. In another that aims to make the reports we hear about violence across Latin America feel more personal. And we're joined by Oriana Leckard, who works with journalism creators here at Kickstarter. She's going to help us explore these ideas.
2: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: It's so awesome to have you here. So, okay, Oriana, first of all, there are probably some people who would be surprised to learn that Kickstarter even has a journalism category. How does journalism fit in with the other creative projects here at Kickstarter?
2: I am so glad that you asked me that. <laughs> it is almost my entire job to explain that to people. This is a really fascinating moment to be pursuing alternative funding for the media um, in case it isn't wildly apparent all of the old ways are broken. So there's really just like so much exciting experimentation to try to figure out new ways to make the media happen. And I think that community supported journalism is really having a huge moment right now because folks are finally starting to get the message that if we want the news to continue to exist, we might have to actually support it. When I think of journalism, I think of a field that's
0: supposed to be objective, hard facts. And when I think of creativity, I think it's something that is subjective and, you know, a space where people can express themselves and their experiences. So are the ideas of journalistic objectivity and
2: individual creativity at odds with each other? I think they're definitely not at odds with each other. I think that part of the work of being a successful journalist is employing creativity in a way that's going to make the facts that you're presenting compelling. Um, I think the idea that any of us could be strictly objective is kind of a lie. We are human. We are nothing but our collections of experiences and thoughts and the catastrophes of baggage that we've amassed Mm -hmm. over the course of our lives. Of course, most journalists would say that they are attempting to approach objectivity, but factual accuracy is only one part of how you tell a story. I mean, we just saw the first image ever captured of a black hole. So if you wanted to report that story, you could report scientists captured the first image of a black hole, and that would be factually accurate. You could also report in the grand tradition of unknown women driving STEM disciplines forward, a 29-year-old woman named Katie Bowman led a team that captured the first ever image of a black hole. All of these things are factually accurate, but the creativity behind them allows you to tell totally different elements of the story that are going to appeal to different audiences and readers.
1: So what are some of your favorite journalistic experiments that have come through Kickstarter?
2: There are so many different ways to experiment. I mean, one that I really love is there's a 90-second podcast, The World According to Sound, and it has one sound and then one minute of conversation about that sound, how it started and where it came from.
3: This is blood surging through a person's brain. This is the great stalagpipe
1: organ. It's the world's largest instrument. These are ants, hundreds and hundreds of small black ants.
2: On like a completely opposite direction, there's a nonprofit newsroom that launched in Chicago called City Bureau, and what they focus on is a lot of like almost citizen journalism and really hyper local reporting. So they'll pay average citizens to go and sit in on community board meetings or like traffic incident hearings. As newsrooms are shrinking, we don't have the bandwidth to be sending journalists to every single hyperlocal thing like this. But you can send regular citizens there, give them some money, really bring them into the process of like the nitty-gritty of how journalism happens. And there have also been projects from names that people might recognize, right? You know, there's a lot of experiments with, like, new outlets, but even somewhat older kinds of media outlets like Gothamist, which is one of my favorite places for local media in New York City. After they got shut down, they had a somewhat complicated path toward relaunch, and they used Kickstarter actually to buy back their own archives, um, which had been kept from them. So, And that inspired several other of the Ist brands, including LAist and DCist, to run their own campaigns so that they could also relaunch. And that has been you know, really crucial for local media at a moment when there are fewer and fewer smaller journalistic outlets um, in cities across the country and across the world.
0: So trying to stay on top of the news in an era of constantly updating feeds and smartphone alerts can feel really daunting, if not impossible. And the truth is, we know this pace isn't good for us. Just think of the language we use to talk about being a news junkie or a Twitter addict or needing to go on an internet cleanse.
2: Yeah, you're not wrong. A lot of people really feel that way. So one of the projects that we're going to take a deeper look at is a group of journalists who were very aware of that sort of frenetic culture that we're all struggling under, and they wanted to change it. They wanted a completely new way of doing journalism, a slow way. They're called Tortoise.
3: The BBC creates four seconds of news for every second in the day. It's just a cacophony of almost white noise. So the motto of Tortoise is slow down, wise up.
2: That's Katie Vanek-Smith, She used to be president of the Wall Street Journal, but today she's publisher and co-founder of Tortoise, along with James Harding, who was formerly editor of the London-based newspaper The Times and head of news at the BBC.
3: James tells a story of being at the BBC back in 2016, when there was a major terrorist atrocity in Nice. where. A lorry driver just drove down the promenade, killing lots of people. And in his role of head of news then, they were looking into the backstory of the individual who was the lorry driver. And then by the time it got to the news bulletin that evening, that story had been dropped from the lead story because events had happened in Turkey that had taken the top spot on the news and he had this sort of moment the next day where he was like what was the backstory of the person driving the truck down that street and he realised that going deeper into the story was not something that was afforded in the sort of 24-7 breaking news cycle so you know James had a kind of aha moment in the height of the news and how the news was breaking um, and that's sort of the genesis of the idea and then when he pitched it to me I was like I get it I want in because I want it for me (laughs)
2: It isn't just that the endless flow of news can make us feel ill as individuals. Katie and James believe that the breakneck pace is bad for society, too. As leaders of some of the largest news organizations in the Western world, they recognized that in the rush to be the first to report what happened, news outlets were sacrificing the ability to explain why these things happened and provide any sense of perspective. What we needed, they thought. Was slow news
3: for us slow journalism is about providing a context of understanding why we choose fewer things on purpose so that we can stay with them so actually not news when it happens but news when it's ready
2: katie thinks tortoise will be able to cover stories in a broader more nuanced way and that they'll be able to add new angles to topics that are already in the news on a regular basis you know
3: right now The Me Too movement and gender is very front and foremost, but it comes in and out of the news cycle, driven by revelations of an individual. But actually for us, that conversation is an ongoing conversation. So we won't be publishing when there's a Women's March or when another story breaks around individuals who have behaved like the Harvey Weinsteins of this world. So we have a series of conversations around this, and that isn't driven by the news cycle. That's driven by the fact that we believe that having a conversation around gender and understanding how we use this moment as it was to come up with solutions for society really matters.
2: There are some other notable distinctions between the way Tortoise does things and how they're done at traditional news outlets. For one, Tortoise wants to remain truly independent, and so they're operating on a membership model. They don't take advertising money, and they're not directed by a majority shareholder.
3: We think it really matters because the only people then you're accountable to are your members. Because ultimately, what we do is a public service. So open journalism for us starts with... Simple things like for every subject that we talk about or publish our point of view on, we create and share with our members all of the data, all of the analysis, all of the information we have used. We call them tortoise notes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the conversation that you traditionally have as a newsroom to get to a point of view is in something called editorial conference or leader conference. Our version of that, which we call a think-in, will be open to our members and our partners to come in and join. The sort of difference of the Tortoise Newsroom is that we believe the more voices that you hear and listen to in advance of coming up with the point of view, the more informed that point of view will be. Most of these journalistic events that you see live, they feel more like a panel discussion, don't they? Here are the experts on the stage. We're telling you our point of view. You can ask us a question and we'll respond to you. That's not what we're doing. The world doesn't need another panel discussion. There are quite enough of them, you know? So one of our only rules, and in fact, our only rule in the thinking is no questions. What we want to be able to do is genuinely offer people a seat at the table. We want to hear your firsthand experiences and we want to hear your point of view. So we don't publish a point of view until we have created this organized system of listening. And the reason we think that matters is because if you think about some of the big stories of the last 10 years, be it the economic crisis of 2008 or the rise of populism and extremist political perspectives, and also this sense that the media and many others in power have failed to see some of the human and societal impacts of big technology, right? So we're living through some of those now. Those are stories that if you had been listening in different rooms, if you'd been in Des Moines rather than DC, you may have heard a very different perspective from the voices in those rooms, and that would have informed your journalism.
2: Since they started publishing in January 2019, Tortoise has been hosting think-ins at their newsroom in London, as well as on the road. I caught up with Katie at a think-in they held in New York City just last month.
3: So we were in Louisville, Kentucky. And we're in D.C. next month. And uh, in fact, next week, James is in Greece in a refugee camp in Lesbos, understanding firsthand the stories of those people that are refugees. I'm in Amsterdam in Soho House, talking about the future of belonging. So... Um, He's probably got the more interesting story, I've probably got the nicer bed.
2: <laughs> After a think tortoise editors create a sort of digest of what was discussed, which gets distributed to members. And these digests often include actual audio recordings of the conversations. We're going to hear some recent examples, like this discussion about Michael Jackson and the long-standing allegations of child abuse against him.
3: Like many people, I have sort of childhood associations with Michael Jackson and those to do with my cousin dressing up as Michael Jackson with the glove and everything and the white socks and the loafers and doing the dance from BAD and singing along, but he didn't know the words, so he just made the same noises. And I wonder, oddly, with Michael Jackson, if we weren't necessarily paying attention to the words. Michael Jackson is the amazing outfits, right, and the sound and the dances. Actually, I looked at the lyrics of Smooth Criminal this afternoon and it's really hard to look at and think about, even for a second, the lyrics to Smooth Criminal, which are clearly about some kind of sexual attack. Everyone on social media believes that the world revolves around social media. You can put up a poll or someone could put up a tweet and they can be retweeted many times and people believe that's a consensus of British society and that's not the case. Most of my friends that I've spoken to, both male and female, they don't believe that Michael Jackson was guilty. But when I go on online, it's like, yes, he's guilty.
2: Another thinking dealt with the rise of the far right and how it relates to the election of Donald Trump in the U.S. and the Brexit vote in the U.K.
4: Anti-immigration, anti-multiculturalism. These are the ideas which have traditionally drove the far right. The reason why they had no political success is because they were seen as fringe and racist and eccentric. But you now have mainstream politicians who agree with them.
5: People that weren't saying these matters openly beforehand, as soon as Brexit happened, have sort of like unleashed quite a lot of racist jargon and these tropes. And why do
3: you, think, you think it's okay to say that now in a
5: way that they didn't two years ago? Because I think the tendency is to believe that those who <clears throat> voted Leave were of the more racist and xenophobic opinion. And so because Britain has put ourselves in the position where we have voted Leave overall, it makes people think that that xenophobic opinion is a more widely accepted one. My son was taught to go home where he came from the day after the referendum. He's also got brown skin. And that never happened to him in his life. It was an empowerment of permission.
2: Beyond Thinkins, Tortoise also provides members with a daily update of no more than five short stories on a range of topics. And they're planning to publish a quarterly book of long reads, thoughtfully reported pieces that investigate a single topic in more depth. And while most news organizations treat objectivity as a kind of baseline for what they do, Tortoise embraces having an opinion one based on hearing from a lot of different voices. For them, it's about not just reporting on a problem, but also
3: thinking about a possible solution. Objectivity in news is about the facts and the information. We are not another news outlet. We are much more focused on participatory and proactive solutions driving journalism. So a take really matters. You know, we are focused on investigations, analysis, and opinion. Those are the things that we think add To the conversation and take us to a positive place so that we can drive for action and solutions. So we will have an opinion.
2: Tortoise has laid out a really ambitious new model for reporting the news. They have a kind of thesis about what a better approach would look like. And of course, they're really early in this journey. They're still experimenting, figuring out what works. That's where a lot of journalists find themselves right now asking fundamental questions about how they do their work.
0: So Tortoise is all about slowing down and embracing a deeper look at the news. And Nick, you're going to tell us about a project from some other journalists who've come up with a different way to go deeper into the stories they cover.
1: That's right. And for them, it's all about bringing greater emotional depth to reporting the news. Alejandra Sanchez and Susa and Jose Luis Pardo Veras are the co-founders of Dramamonos, a journalistic production company that's covered inequality, corruption, and violence throughout Latin America for years. Much of their work takes the form of traditional reporting. They've worked with the New York Times, Vice News, Univision, and other established media outlets. But they've also developed a really different way to tell the stories of people affected by violence throughout the region. And it's not just about reporting facts or representing the scale of these problems. It's about inspiring empathy. They're based in Mexico City, and I talked with them over a video call.
5: We've been covering violence and drug trafficking and drug policy since 2012.
6: And our current project, En Malos Pasos, is an investigation in the seven most violent countries in Latin America, Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico.
5: Because this is a region without a, an official war, except for Colombia, that had a civil conflict before, it is really hard for people that doesn't live in violent context to understand what is happening. They know there's a problem, but they think it's really far away from their homes and they are like really tired of news about violence. They are like, okay, tell me another story.
6: Besides doing traditional reporting and writing long-form stories, we decided to look for new ways to connect with readers.
5: So we wanted to explore empathy because we think that journalism is a good tool for creating empathy. That's why we decided to have this interactive phone booth to reduce, like, this disconnection between readers and the people affected by violence.
1: So this booth Alejandra mentions, it's a phone booth that they take to different cities around Latin America and position in public places, like parks or plazas outside subway stations. When you step up to the booth and pick up the phone, a person appears on a video screen in front of you.
5: In the booth, there's a person which explains their life experience. Maybe his son was killed or maybe they are an activist that fight against violence in any of these countries. So they tell their story and then they ask a question to the public or to the user that is listening to the story. And they ask like, what would you do if you were in my shoes?
1: And once the storyteller in the video asks that question, a camera turns on and you have a chance to record a response. Imagining what you would do if you were facing the same situation. It's a way to make this issue, which can feel amorphous and hard to understand, more personal. Like having a conversation with a single person, rather than grappling with confusing statistics. One example of these stories is from a woman named Betty Luisa Samario from San Carlos, Colombia.
6: So Betty is a survivor of the war between guerrilla and paramilitaries in Colombia. And she lives in, in San Carlos, which is a small town. And in the worst years, about 70% of the population in San Carlos uh, lives because of the violence. And she decided to stay. My name is Doria Betty loaiza Murillo, hija de San Carlos. My name is Doria
4: Betty Loaiza-Samurillo, a resident of San Carlos. I was born in San Carlos and remained there during the war. I didn't leave because I could never abandon my family. My brother disappeared. He was on a mountain for 10 years, but we eventually managed to find him. His remains cannot be found here in San Carlos, in the temple. During that time of violence, I was targeted to be killed, but God gave me the strength to keep going. Today, I can say that I perform my duty with love that it's worth fighting for a town and the people you love. Fear forces us into making decisions that are not
6: ours. If you were put on a list to be killed, would you stay?
1: And people answer these questions in very different ways. Here are a couple of responses to Betty's story that they collected when they brought the booth to a different part of Colombia. One person expresses admiration for her decision to stay.
4: I think it's a very difficult decision, but we must look towards times of peace and be brave so that violent groups do not displace us anymore. Your story
1: is very beautiful. You're a hero to our country. And another person shares a different perspective.
4: I believe that I can serve my country, my people, if I leave. Because if I'm dead, if I die, I can't do anything, but if I leave, if I go somewhere else where I can fight more, it's better than being dead. So I think that I would want to leave to be able to fight
5: more from a stronger place. The dialogue is really different. It's like if if you just read the story or watch it in the TV, you say, okay, this is terrible like people are being killed in favelas in brazil that's terrible or okay drug trafficking is affecting mexico okay but they don't have any emotion about that so
6: because they live in the same country but are different worlds you know it's like you can live in mexico but you can live in a neighborhood like uh, roma which is famous now because of <laughs> the movie the and violence it never happens here
1: Alejandro and Jose generally meet the people they feature in this booth while doing more traditional reporting. They're often sources for the stories they write, providing facts about the unofficial conflicts they cover. But sometimes, the way a person tells a story, the human emotion they express, is as important as the content. That's what they look for in selecting people to feature in the booth for these virtual face-to-face conversations.
5: For example, one of the stories that is in the booth is Edna Carla Sousa is a mother in Fortaleza. And Fortaleza is one of the cities with the highest murder rate for children and teenagers.
4: My name is Edna Carla Souza Calvacanchi. I am the mother of Alev Souza Calvacanchi. I live here in Fortaleza, Ceará, Brazil. In 2015, my son, at age 17, was murdered by the military police. He and other young people. There were 11 victims of this slaughter. None of them had a criminal record. None of them were in trouble with the law, but the police killed them all the same. And this is very cruel, when you see that your son is not in trouble with the law, is not involved in crime, and ends up being killed by the police themselves. An institution that was created to promote peace, to protect, to keep people safe, and they came and killed my son. So I turned my grief into action, I'm fighting for justice so that the real culprits are relieved of their positions, removed from the police force, and condemned for the criminals they are. Because I can't finance the bullet that killed my son, I can't pay for the salary of a police officer who killed my son, it isn't fair for this to happen. That's it. I know it's not all police officers, but here in Brazil, here in Sierra, this happens. Police officers see poor, black youth in the slums, living on the outskirts of town, sitting on the sidewalk, and decide they deserve to die. This is cruel. Now I ask you, parents, what would you do if the police killed your child? What would you do?
5: With this particular case, with Edna, most of the answers are like, wow, you are a hero, I would do the same. And some people say like, I wouldn't know what to do. I would be completely crazy. The responses are really different, but definitely in that experience is empathy and a connection between them.
6: Edna is a mother and everybody has a family. This is the key. Okay, and the context is violence, but the key is like a mother opens her heart to you and you open your heart to her. The name of the project in Malos Pasos means
1: on the wrong path. And Alejandro and Jose explained that this is a typical response when people hear about a killing, that anyone involved must have been in the wrong place, talking to the wrong people. By sharing these stories, they hope to provide a fuller picture. And this means that they don't just record the stories of victims and activists. They also talk to people who have been perpetrators of violence in the past.
5: To understand, murder as a phenomenon, you have to understand the people that is murdering. We think that that's a mistake in journalism, that sometimes because there's an ethical barrier to like, OK, I'm not going to interview any, a criminal. And we respect that. But we also are thinking like sociologists, you know. If we want to understand why Latin America is the most violent region in the world, we have to talk with the violent people. It's like we have, for example, a young drug trafficker that started in crime at 12 years, and he didn't know there was any other option. That doesn't erase the fact that he's a murderer. And we don't justify that, we just want to understand that.
1: Here's the storyteller Alejandra is talking about, a former drug trafficker from Brazil who they just identify as Gallo.
5: When
4: you're a thug in a drug gang, you have to be ready to take the boss's orders. Like, if the boss says, go get those guys, you have to kill them. And this happened to me several times. Me hanging out in the community, the mother of the boy they've just killed shows up, and I know she's the mother of the boy. And she comes up to me and she says, hey, have you seen my son? And I say, gee, lady, I haven't seen him. I knew. I knew she would never see him again. But what am I going to say? For sure, we just killed your son over there? Not going to do that. Geez, I'm not as bad as that. I'm bad, just not that bad. I'd always known the drug gang. When the police would come to the favelas, the guys would hide at my place. My mother would hide the guns for them. So ever since I was a little guy, I've been around those things. I would smell the weed, I would watch the older guys smoke. That was my experience. After I got completely involved, I never left the favela. Do you know what it's like to stay in the favela for five years and never leave? It's like you stay here inside, like a baby, without leaving. It's like being incarcerated. That's how my life was there. I was stuck inside that community. My life was staying stuck inside. I have no direction, dude. I don't even have any place to go. I've done so many foolish things. There's nowhere I can go right now. I'm here because of drugs, but not just because of drugs. Also because I have no place to go. Get it?
5: We want people to not think of Fetna just as a victim. She's also an activist. And Gallo is not just a killer, he's also a victim. And he's now a fighter because now he wants to help other kids in their situation to get out of crime. And it's like people are so many things that you can define them in just one aspect.
6: The booth is like a tool against categories. For me, that is very important. We try to understand them, and the police or the judges judge them, but we are journalists.
1: Alejandra Sánchez-Nzúza and, and José Luis Pardo Veras are the co-founders of Drumamonos. We heard recordings from their interactive storytelling project, Cabana en Malos Pasos. Translations were read by Gina Roverosa from Kickstarter's international team.
2: Listening to that makes me think about our earlier conversation about the intersection of creativity and journalism. To me, this is a great example of how creativity and journalism can be intertwined. This is not a normal way to read a story about drug trafficking in a favela, but a way to really get inside of someone else's experience, which I think is one of the goals of many kinds of journalism. I think this does that in a really harrowing and beautiful way.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Oriana. It was so cool to hear about all the new and exciting journalistic experiments happening on Kickstarter.
2: Yeah, it was a real pleasure to do. Um, And this is something that I'm thinking about and talking about all the time. In fact, my boss, Margot Atwell, our director of publishing, she conceived uh, Kickstarter's first ever digital publishing conference, which is going to be happening next month on May 11th. It's an entire day dedicated to Figuring out the future of publishing in the media. We're gonna have four panels on radical inclusivity and building community and figuring out fundraising, all sorts of ways into this massive and crucial question of how do we create the future of publishing that we want to see. The conference is free, and it's streamed online. Anybody can join. Um, If you go to kickstarter.com slash conferences, you'll see it, it's called The Next Page Conference, and we would love input from anybody anywhere around the world.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Just the Beginning. The show is produced by me, Zakia Gibbons, Michael Garofalo, and Nick Yolman. Elise Malouk is Kickstarter's editorial director. Our theme music is by Balloon.
1: We heard additional music by Jake Armading, Jeremy Arndt, and Ensemble et al. Special thanks to Rebecca Hiscott and Celia Vermicelli.
0: Until next time, I'm Zakia Gibbons.
1: I'm Nick Ullman, and this is just the beginning.